Hello and welcome back to Saints Talk Sex. This week we'll be discussing disabilities and mental health in connection to sexual oppression. On today's episode, we are going to cover everything from how different forms of disabilities are impacted by society's sexual stereotypes to mental health support resources. Hey, what's up listeners? My name is Polly and I'm going to be one of your hosts for this week's episode on disabilities and mental health. Please welcome our first speaker, Meg, who is going to kickstart this episode with a segment on disabilities and sex. Let's think of some identity categories or groups that we identify with. Many people first think of gender, race, ethnicity, or nationality. This practice shows us what identities are most salient with us. These are the groups in which we identify and feel that they make us who we are. These identities often privilege or oppress us given the society that we live in. However, many people do not think of being privileged having been able to walk to class or being able to read at the same rate as their classmates. Ability is often the most forgotten identity category. It goes so unnoticed in able-bodied individuals that many do not fully understand the concept of ability or disability. There are three main types of disabilities. Physical, being an amputee. Cognitive, like autism spectrum disorder, or mental. For example, somebody could say that their schizophrenia disables them. Some disabilities are visible, like somebody using a wheelchair, while some are invisible, like hearing loss or deafness. Ability affects everything we do from getting out of bed to breathing or even seeing. Almost all able-bodied people take their ability for granted, which is ironic because ability is precarious. As we age and experience life events, our ability deteriorates. Our society tells us that this is something to fear and avoid, but what if we changed the way we looked at disability altogether? Disability could signal the beginning of something new, It could help you to make sense of the world around you. Now let's relate the topic back to something that many of us understand, especially here on Saints Talk Sex. Sex. Not just sex, but good and healthy sex. Disability and sexuality is largely seen as mysterious and crowded in misconceptions. Let's unpack some of them, and maybe they'll remember a time or an example of these misconceptions in action. Many people assume that sex with a person with a disability is more complicated than sex with an able-bodied person, when in reality, all good, healthy sexual experiences require communication and adjustments to each other's needs. A person with a physical disability may benefit from the use of sex furniture, but can you think of a time that you benefited sexually from the use of a prop? Having good sex involves telling your partner what you need and what feels good. This is no different for disabled folks. There's a long history behind the idea that people with disabilities simply do not or cannot have sex. This can be traced back to the history of institutional abuse, which framed people with disabilities as asexual or even sterilized them. According to Michael G. Silver, approximately 60,000 disabled individuals were sterilized at an institutional level from the early to mid 20th century. However, most disabled people nowadays have fulfilling sex lives, which some claim are more expansive and enjoyable, given the mutual respect between partners than able-bodied sex. Disability and sex often ends up being the butt of the joke in the media. This is expressed through asking people with disabilities intrusive questions about their bodies and sex lives. 
For example, why would you ever ask an able-bodied man if he could get an erection? Unless you're a doctor or a consenting sexual partner, the question is an invasion of privacy. Good, healthy sex is consent and respect between all partners involved, no matter the ability of the consenting partners. Disability permeates everything we do as humans. I challenge you to sit and think of a few ways that you are privileged by your ability. Once you open your eyes to your abilities and your disabilities, you become more aware of yourself and those around you. Today's takeaway is that all humans, regardless of ability, have the right to be sexual beings as long as they practice healthy communication and affirmative consent with their partners. And remember to always be respectful of boundaries. Thank you for sharing with us, Meg. Next up is Eleanor, who will be sharing with us how our society views quote-unquote real sex and how disabilities are affected by this. In her TED talk about sexuality and disability, Dr. Daniel Shapeberg argues that based on survey data, Americans are not reporting a high satisfaction in their sexual lives. She argues that one reason for this is society leaving disabled people out of the discussions when thinking about sex and relationships. Indeed, our societal expectation of what is quote-unquote real sex both harm people with disabilities who are not always able to meet those criteria, and it also puts social pressure on everyone else in the moments that are supposed to be about the people involved and no one else. The ideas that characterize quote-unquote real sex are often those we see in mainstream porn. In those videos, we always see the same bodies represented, and when they deviate from the fit white body, it is fetishized or objectified leaving disabled people to either be seen as non-sexual because they don't fit the norm or as objects of fetish with no respect for their personhood. Quote-unquote real sex is seen as penetrative, focused on genitalia, with no accessory, lasting usually a long time and containing multiple acrobatic positions. However, disabled people are excluded from this narrative, especially if they experience symptoms like limited or painful movement or articulations, fatigue, or lack of sensation in certain sexual aspects of the body. Of course, every disability and person is different, but representations and information about different ways of having sex is missing, and it can lead to problems of self-esteem, body acceptance, or simply lead to a lack of preparation for how to have good sex. Additionally, the issue of privacy is often raised, as disabled people sometimes need assistance, caregivers, or they live in group homes or special institutions. It can first decrease the time window where people can have sex, but it can also mean that since some people might need extra help to have sex, such as being transferred from a wheelchair to a swing, the assistant might help to do so, especially in cases where two disabled people want to have sex with each other and the other partner cannot help them to do it. This challenges the notion of sex as a totally private act where people cannot accept help. To fight against this problem society imposes on disabled people's sexuality, People have to start thinking creatively and think of other ways to define and have sex that able-bodied people can reflect on so a wider part of the population can stop being limited by this notion of what quote-unquote real sex is. By integrating disabled people in sex education and discussions about sex and relationships, we are first contesting the ideas of beauties and sexiness that still exclude disabled people. We need to expand this notion so that people with scars, different body shapes or heights, different mobility of capacity, start being automatically seen as incapable of sex. Disability rights activists are also working on increasing the notion of listening to one's bodies to be more in tune with one's needs, wants, and also limitations. The other part of that is also how to communicate it to a partner. 
without being scared of going against this idea of real sex. Boundary setting is not something we have been taught to think as appropriate to talk about. Yet, often disabled people have to be, from day one, open about the fact that some acts that are considered essential to have quote-unquote real sex are not possible for them. But there are as many ways to have sex or to be in a relationship as there are people in relationships. Learning to be creative and to respect the other person and their boundaries is important to sex in general, but especially so for disabled people. In that sense, normalizing accessories such as sex toys and lubricants, and also furniture such as swings, is important to avoid people being hurt or fatigued by an activity that should be enjoyed. Another idea is to altogether emphasize intimacy over sex. That is to say, focusing on reinforcing the connection or pleasure between partners instead of trying to perform certain acts that we have been conditioned to think are essential to have sex. Disabled people are worthy of love and sex. Sex should include more conversation about comfort and adaptiveness. Indeed, the notion that sexual acts and boundaries should depend on the person participating in it and not on a mystical idea of what quote-unquote real sex allows each person to be respected and to respect their partner. This idea can even be widened as a way of looking at relationships in general, because markers to what makes a real couple can be unattainable by disabled people. Their work and activism invite us to ask, what do I need from a relationship, and what is just societal pressure that doesn't add anything for me and my partner? For example, sleeping in the same bed can be difficult for people with disabilities, heightened skin sensation issues, as the person next to them might move or make them move by accident. But sleeping in separate bed is generally seen as something quote-unquote real couples don't do. It is interesting that these separate bed ideas could be used for people who have to wake up at different hours to go to work, for example. But because of ideals of relationships, few people actually do it. In the end, we still have a long way to go to separate ourselves from the idea of quote-unquote real sex and relationships. Looking to disabled people as experts in creativity can help us find solutions and learn new ways of being in relationships with each other. So next time you're about to swipe left on someone with a disability, think twice about how society has brainwashed you into thinking they can't be a good partner because of imposed standards of beauty and sexiness. Our next speaker is Raylan, who will be sharing mental health tips as well as places on campus here at St. Lawrence University that can provide mental health support. positive things and activities that can be used to help you with your mental health, as well as sharing some important spots on campus where students can go for help regarding issues they are having with mental health. So let's get into it. What's important is that taking care of your own mental health can allow you to learn how to become a better partner in your relationship. By making sure you are mentally stable can help set a positive tone your future relationship. The MHA, which stands for Mental Health of America, came up with 31 tips and activities that could help improve your mental health. Now, we won't be going through all 31, but I've selected some that I will definitely be taking part in in the future. The first tip is to track gratitude and achievement with a journal, which is one that I've actually heard before multiple times, but I've always been too lazy to find a cute journal to journal in. Like, I'll go to the store and I have the intention of buying the journal, but then I'll walk out with something completely unrelated to what I was looking for in the first place. 
Over the summer when I was on campus, I actually did end up buying a journal, but it only lasted for about a week. <laughs> Sometimes my days would be so long that I didn't even want to get creative and bring out my colored pens and stickers to jot down three things that I was grateful for in one achievement, but I actually still do this, um, but instead of putting it in a journal, I'll put it in the notes on my phone just because it's easier and uh, I can still think of something positive at the end of the day, which I think is the whole point of this um, activity is to just reflect on what you're proud of yourself for, and I think going to bed, like, feeling accomplished makes you just a more positive and grateful person. So I will definitely be doing this. The second one I really liked is dance around while you do your homework. And the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, in Grey's Anatomy where Meredith and Christina dance it out whenever they're stressed or tired or really need to pull it together. Um, this might not be something I'm going to be doing in the middle of the student center, but I'll try it out in my dorm room or in the private rooms in the library. Um, but since dancing increases endorphins and has a pretty positive connotation, I think that by forcing your body to dance just automatically puts you in a better mood. So now when I'm stressed or studying, cleaning, or doing laundry, I'm just going to try dancing and see how I feel afterwards. <laughs> The third one that I have is being a tourist in your own town. This is like oddly perfect for St. Lawrence, especially since there are so many trails and places to explore. The MHA states that people who explore really only explore attractions on trips, but you may be surprised on what cool things you can find in your backyard. Again, being here in the summer with no sports going on and the weather being so nice, my friends and I were able to go to Hearts Falls, which is a cute little watery, like, swimming hole, and there's a waterfall. It's so pretty. Um, and we also went on hikes that were really cool. Uh, nothing that I would do in the winter, honestly, but it gave me a chance to look around and explore the area of Canton. And if you think there's nothing to do in Canton, there are some hidden gems. You just have to look or go online or ask around. The fourth one that I see um, that I want to mention is experiment. The MHA says experiment with, with a new recipe, write a poem, paint, or try a Pinterest project. It says that creative expression and overall well-being are very linked together. Um, and I think this will just get you into an activity that maybe you'll like. Maybe you'll uh, find out that you don't like it, but at least you tried something new. Um... But yeah, do like an arts and crafts project. Go to Pinterest. There's so many things on Pinterest. It was good that they recommended that. Finally, to conclude, I want to share some spots on campus that are available for students struggling with mental health. There is a 24-hour hotline that you can call or text and reach out to the SLU advocates at 315-244-5466. Um, again, that's 315-244-5466. 5466 and then you can also schedule a counseling appointment with a therapist at the health center um, but thank you so much for listening uh, and talk to you next week bye
thank you, Raylan, for sharing those awesome tips. And last but certainly not least, we have Lauren and Ben, who will share ways to cope with stress as well as the importance of mental health. we get into a relationship we put all of our love and care into that one person this makes it hard for when we see that person struggling we think of things that we can do that will make this person feel better or even sometimes cure this person but someone who's struggling with mental illness cannot be cured with just the love of another person but yet we seem to tend to put all of the stress and problems on ourselves Now, no one is at fault because we are all human. And when we see people hurting, it's only natural to want to help. People who are struggling with this usually need a professional help. But yet, we let it consume our lives with helping our loved ones and the problems that they're facing. This can only consume our lives. It can be the only thing that we are worrying about during the day, and it can be the last thing we think of before we go to bed. But what does this do to us? We not, might not be the ones who are struggling, but we do hurt from watching the person we care about so much struggling. This can cause pain and stress to us, but we can't let the stresses take over our lives. We need to be able to take a step back and be the best person we can for all of our loved ones. For a lot of us that are dealing with someone who is struggling, it causes stress to us as individuals. So I found some ways to help cope with stress. The CDC recommends three different steps to help relieve these stresses because you can't be a good person to your partner if you can't take care of yourself. The first way that the CDC suggests to be able to help cope with stress is to disconnect. Sometimes we need a break from the outside world. We don't need to hear all of the problems that are happening in today's world when we ourselves are dealing with our own problems. Taking breaks from social media, the news, and not replying to every single email that comes into our inbox every day. Being able to take a step back from what is happening in the world and not only thinking about what's going on, but thinking about what our bodies are feeling. The idea of disconnecting is being able not to worry about anything but yourself. This all can help with the buildup of stress that we get from today's world and being able to give us a break. Next, take care of your body. Paying attention to what your physical state is will help you with your mental state to be able to revigorate you as a whole person. Watching your breathing, stretching, even meditation, just trying to unwind and relieve the tension in your body is a great start. Relieving the stress of your physical body will help with your mental state of your body too. Being able to find more ways to help the stress that you're having and finding the ability to unwind. Finding ways to bring your mind out of the equation and trying to do other activities that you know you will enjoy.
Sometimes the stress of things is too much. And you know, you can't take it on alone. Thus, talking to a person who's not in the situation is another great way to cope. Find people out of the situation and letting them know that maybe you need some help too. You're not in the wrong if you need help. At the end of the day, being able to take care of yourself will only help your significant other. You taking time out of your day is not selfish, but necessary. If you think your partner's mental health is negatively impacting you, don't be scared to talk about it with them or with another person. Mental illness cannot be put onto one person. There's a community of people that can always help. Reach out, take care of yourself, and realize you're never alone. And if you are stressing about all of the things going on, just remember, take a break, disconnect, pay attention to what your body is telling you, and talk to people. Because you're never alone when battling with your own mental illness or even with someone you love's mental illness. You're here with Ben McCabe and today I will be talking to you about mental health and why it is so crucial to humans living their everyday lives. So let's begin. I'm going to start off with a great, great fact here I found. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, mental illnesses are common in the United States. Nearly one in five United States adults live with a mental illness. That's 51.5 million people in 2019. Mental illnesses include many different conditions that vary in degree of severity, ranging from mild to moderate to severe. With that being said, Mental health needs to be focused on way more, specifically with students in school across the United States. Personally, I suffer from mental health daily, and I know many of my friends do as well. And there should be no more stigma around students in the United States speaking up when they are not okay. Anxiety and depression were a huge slap in my face when I first started to encounter them with my mental health in the fall of 2019. It was during my freshman year and I was so lost and scared, which freaked me out not knowing who I was or what I wanted to do in my life. That was a terrifying time for me, but I'm so happy that it happened to me because I would not be the young man I am today if it was not for that experience I encountered back in the fall semester of 2019. The best decision I made was to reach out and start talking to people, which was the best decision I made rather than bottle it up in my head and not get it out. There's a great article I read written by a mental health activist, Walter Lee entitled, Self-Care Alone Will Not Fix the System. This article focuses on how no one should try to solve their own mental health issues, and there's a great comment Lee made, and it said, I was posting a self-care tip about the value of journaling on the Instagram of my school's mental health club. Something felt off. Telling people to journal felt like putting a band-aid on a broken arm. That quote by Lee stuck out to me when I was reading this article because he is right. Although journaling is healthy, it is way more critical and more intelligent to reach out to anyone you are comfortable talking to and speaking up about what is going on with your mental health. This bring back, brings back my personal story of when I came to St. Lawrence University my freshman fall and I was so overwhelmed with the work I received. I reached out to people here on campus and back home I got the help I needed to get better and stay on campus here at St. Lawrence. 
Lee mentions 56.4% of adults struggling with mental illness will never get help. Imagine that. 56.4% of adults with a broken arm never get help. That comment spoke way more than just words on a paper. 56.4 adults struggling with mental health never and never get help is ridiculous. That should never be happening. And the worst part about it is that there are many people you hang out with every day that could be fighting for their life because their mental health is so down. Speak up. It does nothing more than help you out. And if you not start talking about your feelings now, I'm not sure how you will do it later in life because it takes practice. There was another good article I found by Lola Byers Ogle entitled Trivializing Mental Health Illness Makes Me Depressed. This article touched on the stigma that comes with mental illnesses. Byers Ogle comments and says, Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, claiming well over 41,000 lives a year. In simpler words, mental illnesses is a big deal. Such a big deal that the World Health Organization cites depression, just one of the many illnesses, as the leading cause of disability. If that does not speak to you, then I do not know what will. Like I have said before, there are so many different statistics that come with mental health, but I think that that is the statistic that needs to be brought to everyone's attention way more. People need to be more aware of what the person they are sitting next to might be going through. Byerzogel talks about a story of a husband who finally reached out to his wife to tell her that he has been depressed. Even after telling his wife, he asked to keep his condition a secret from his family members because of the fear of the reaction. Allie says the experience also took a tremendous toll on her. She wonders why these surprisingly common experiences are kept secret and why the stigma still exists. Allie, I'm wondering the same thing. Why is it known to be such a big deal to talk about your mental health when one in five adults have it? Mental health is one of the most essential things in a human's everyday life, and the stigma around it needs to change right now. I wanted to share one more statistic before I let you go from the Associated for, mental, for Children's Mental Health. Nationally, only 40% of students with emotional, behavioral, and mental health disorders graduate from high school, compared to the a national average of 70, 76% and over 50% of students with emotional and behavioral disabilities ages 14 and older drop out of high school. Those are some mind-blowing facts if you ask me. And the fact that the stigma for mental health is so wrong, it seems so unethical to me. I really enjoyed this. And as I've said before, it has a significant impact on me. And I just want to be an advocate for everyone and anyone who needs help with anything and know that it is okay to not be okay. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening to Saints Talk Sex and a round of applause for this week's speakers. As always, don't forget to check out our Instagram page at Ed for more information. And stay tuned for our next episode on sexual violence and healthy relationships.